You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Great. Well, it's great to see you tonight. Good to have you here uh, with us and appreciate your time uh, tonight. I, I don't know if, if um, you've ever, this has occurred to you before, but isn't it true um, that you hold in highest esteem the people in your life that have been through a challenge. Maybe they've been through the valley of the shadow of death and they've come out the other side with a sense of joy, with a deep sense of peace. They were hurt, but they didn't hurt back. They were unfairly treated, arguably, but they didn't strike back. They went through a health crisis maybe, but they didn't go through a faith crisis. They exercised their superpower. And it's this superpower that stops you from becoming like your enemies. It's this superpower that keeps you from reflecting your circumstances into your future. It thwarts evil, there's no doubt of that. It redeems suffering. In fact, it redeems almost anything and takes you to higher ground. This superpower that you have will always, always, no matter what transpires in your life, allow you to come out the other side better for it. We all have it. We all have this superpower, this special special ability that empowers us to be better for anything that life throws at us. I'm going to define it. Then we're going to drop in on a story, a well-known story in the Bible, where we're going to see the superpower at work, and we're going to see how destiny-defining it actually is. The reason I'm going to do that is because I hope it inspires you to take the superpower that's in your hand and employ it in your life. Our superpower, the superpower that all of you possess, is our respond ability, yours and my ability to respond as opposed to react, our ability to choose something other than that which is simply model or that others have done. It allows us to influence, indeed dictate our future. You've all seen people, I've seen people, I'm sure everybody could get up and testify to somebody who has been through a circumstance that was less than than, uh, what they'd hoped for. And they reacted. And months, maybe years later, we find those same people in a situation that indeed they wouldn't choose. You see, when we simply react, we relinquish our control over ultimately our destiny, indeed our legacy. The problem is this. The response that has the potential to reverse the natural course of things just isn't natural. The best response is the least intuitive response. The response that's gonna benefit us the most is the one more often than not we are least likely to choose. We're gonna drop in on a story about a man by the name of Joseph and this story takes about 25 years to resolve itself. So we're gonna get through the story in probably 25 minutes or so, but you gotta appreciate the fact that it's, it's, it's all packed in there. Uh, and his story illustrates how the right response 
can increase your future and how counterintuitive but destiny creating it actually is. The story up to date before we jump into the narrative and see what we can learn here tonight. Jacob, uh, Joseph Jacobson was kidnapped once, sold twice, first to a slave trader and then to a, an official in the Egyptian army. He was accused of a crime he never committed. He was cast and therefore into a prison as punishment and there he lay to rot. No one visiting him, nobody caring about him, nobody uh, advocating for his rights. He was a nobody in a, in a nation that had institutional racism. In other words, if you come from outside of our people, um, we won't like you. He was a slave, therefore he had no rights. And then he, now he was a convicted criminal. He was as low as you could go on the social status totem pole. And yet we see how his respondability uh, interacts with his future. Maybe you can interact with his story right at that point. Maybe you can, um, uh, you know what it's like to feel like there's nobody looking out for you. That you are completely and totally and utterly alone. Jo Joseph in this prison was completely and utterly and totally alone. How would someone in your current circumstances respond if they knew absolutely, confidently that God was in control? That seems to be the overarching belief of our, uh, of our uh, man tonight, of Joseph tonight. Um, Joseph will pick up the story in... Um, Chapter 39 of the book of Genesis and the 21st verse, it says this. It says, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, you'd have to agree with me when I say that when God is showing you kindness, you kind of don't really know uh, the name of your prison warden, particularly when you're innocent, right? I mean, if God is with you, if God is on your side then you kind of don't expect to be in a prison for no reason. Yet that's where he is. It says that God was with him. The Lord was with him. And, and I, if I was Joseph, I'd think, be thinking to myself, I wish the Lord was with Potiphar's wife like he's with me. I wish the Lord was with my brothers who sold me into slavery like he's with me. It's just a little bit too much with God. Can you just take your blessing away from me for just a while? And maybe give it to some of the people who have hurt me and punished me. This word kindness that we've just read, the Lord showed him kindness, is a covenantal word. It's loving kindness in the Greek. And it's a covenantal word. Joseph is living his life like he was in some kind of covenant relationship with God. This kind of sense that God was going to be with him no matter what. No matter where. What seems to be a completely unrelated set of circumstances right at this time when Joseph's in the prison is Pharaoh, the leader, the king, if you will, of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the earth at this time, has had an altercation, a falling out with the, the butler and the baker. Not the candlestick maker, fortunately, but the butler 
and the baker are thrown into the dungeon with Joseph. And for some reason or another, Joseph's there and his job's to serve them. So he's getting them breakfast or whatever this day. And he brings in their, their, their I don't know, their, their bread and water, whatever it is that you have in an Egyptian prison for, for breakfast. And they're standing there looking all, they're sitting there looking all glum, long face. And Joseph says to them, you know, why the long face? And they say, because we're in a dungeon, you dimwit. Uh, no, they don't. I made that up. <laughs> they say this. They say in verse 8 of chapter 40, we both had dreams, they answered. But there's no one to interpret the dream. And Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Now that's remarkable. Here is Joseph in the midst of this trying circumstance. God has done nothing for him lately whatsoever. God seems to have not helped him at all. And yet, there is this sense in which he's still trusting God. He's saying, God can do it. My confidence is in God. It is quite a remarkable admission that he makes in this situation. So they tell him the dream and, and, and he interprets and he says to the butler, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position and you'll put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to when you were the cupbearer. But when all this goes well with you, he says, remember me and show me kindness. Now I imagine it's a different kind of kindness to the kindness that God was already showing him, if you know what I mean. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. We discover something about Joseph that's true about all of us. Joseph had a superpower, but he wasn't a superhero. Joseph didn't like being in this prison. Joseph wanted out of the prison. Although he had a sense that God was with him, he wasn't enjoying where he was. And he says to the cupbearer, I was forcibly carried off of the land of the Hebrews in verse 15. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. He's my only way out. I'm so frustrated. Let's hope that he remembers me when he gets out and I can get out of this place. Well, that's the hope that's in Joseph's heart. Well, the, the baker's watching this and he thinks, oh, wow, that's not a bad interpretation. That's a good prophecy. That's a good interpretation. I'll try my luck. I'll see what happens to mine. And the, the baker tells him his story. And Joseph responds with this. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impart your body on a pole. Have a nice day. Uh, he doesn't finish there, right? I mean, you'd think that would be enough information, right? You don't need any more. What's going to happen to me? That's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be, be impaled on a pole. He must have been having a bad morning because he goes on and says, and the birds of the air are going to eat away your flesh. Um, once you're dead, does it really matter? But anyhow, <laughs> a few days later, these dreams come true. The butler's put back at the right hand of Pharaoh. And you could just imagine the Hebrew boy as he's waiting in the dungeon because he said to the man, when you get there, remember me. Come and get me. And, and, and he would have been lying there on the, the dungeon floor, I imagine, every night wondering, is today the day? 
Is this the day that the, that the cupbearer, now the, the uh, butler to the, to the Pharaoh, is going to come and, and, and redeem me, get me out of this place? And every time that the prison master would call his name, he probably grabbed his blanket, his toothbrush, and thought, this is it, I'm on my way out. And every time, he was disappointed. And every time, there was no ticket out. And it says in verse 23 that the cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. The Lord was with him so powerfully. <laughs> Some years later, Pharaoh himself has a dream. And finally, the, the butler, it sparked something in his mind because he had a dream and the Pharaoh's now had a dream and the Pharaoh's disturbed like the butler was disturbed in, in the dungeon. And the Pharaoh, uh, the butler does something that's quite heroic, really. Uh, the chief uh, cupbearer says to Pharaoh in verse 9, uh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Who does this, right? Who brings up with their wife a fight that they had years ago? Remember when you were angry with me? <laughs> um, and you wouldn't do it to Pharaoh, by the way, because if Pharaoh thought, oh, that's right, I don't like you, off with your head, you were dead. Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servant, and he imprisoned me, the chief baker in the house of the captain uh, of the guards, and he reminds him, uh, he's reminded and he tells him that Joseph interpreted his dream. Well, Pharaoh is impressed. And so he tells someone, get the young Hebrew boy, Joseph, and get him in here and see what he says to my dream. So someone tells someone, tells someone, until it gets right the way down the totem pole to the point that someone actually goes to the dungeon and Joseph is taken out. Now, Joseph's been in the dungeon for years. And he's about to have an audience with the king, with the pharaoh. So you could well imagine they put on new clothes, they shower him, he shaved, he probably hasn't looked this good or felt this good for a long, long time. This could have been the first bath that he's had in months, maybe years. He feels a million bucks. He remembers what it like to be human. Pharaoh, and he comes before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to him, I had a dream. No one can interpret it in verse 15. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, what he says next is arguably the most heroic, courageous words ever spoken in the human race. Joseph's response to Pharaoh, I, I think, shows more courage than you'll ever see in any other domain or area of life. Because think about this, right? Here is Pharaoh. His life, Joseph's life is in Pharaoh's hands. Pharaoh lifts an eyebrow and they lift Joseph's head off him and no one says anything. Joseph's an outsider. He's from another, he's a Hebrew. He's, he's not Egyptian. <laughs> Who cares about him? He's a slave. He's a, convicted, he's, a, he's a convicted criminal, a rapist for crying out loud. He's like the low of the low. And here he is standing before the king and the king says I believe that you can interpret dreams you're only here for one reason and that's you might have some value to me and the only value you have to me is can you interpret dreams and Joseph says no, I can't do that <laughs> you could imagine right the butler over there in the corner thinking to himself you idiot <laughs> I put myself out there Oh, I said to the Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, I got this guy. He, he interpreted my dream. 
I reminded the Pharaoh that I was in prison. I didn't have to do that. I'd done this for you and now you tell him you can't do it. You idiot, we're both going to lose our heads. What would you do if you were Joseph right now? What would you do? Surely you'd say, let's give it a go. Tell me a dream. <laughs> I'll tell you anything. Who cares? I'll say, give me a horse. Give me a sack of wheat. I'll give you the interpretation and I'm out of here. That's my ticket to freedom, right? He says, no. <laughs> I can't interpret dreams. Joseph replies to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What an idiot. <laughs> you know why that's such a stupid thing to say? Because Pharaoh thinks he is God. What you've got to understand is that in Egypt, they had their own gods, of which Pharaoh was one. And they thought their gods were superior to every other god because Egypt was superior to every other nation. And you know who the greatest gods are because the greatest gods create the greatest nations, right? And he's got this little Hebrew, this group of nomads out there in the desert somewhere. That's your God and you're telling me that your God's going to interpret my dream? <laughs> That's a crazy thing to say. But Joseph is employing his superpower. Joseph is employing his capacity to respond and not simply to react and grab a short-term gain. Um, fortunately for him, Pharaoh is more bemused or curious maybe than he is offended. And so he says, okay, he interprets the dream and, and Joseph does. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, uh, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravish the land. That's the answer to your dream, Pharaoh. The next thing Joseph does is again quite remarkable. Just again, it's just, it's mind-blowingly courageous because Joseph, the foreigner, the prisoner, um, the convicted felon, Joseph then proceeds to give Pharaoh advice on public policy. There's your dream, Pharaoh, and now here's how you should be running your nation. <laughs> this is a prisoner now telling Pharaoh, now listen, Mr. Pharaoh, this is, what you, this is how you should run Egypt. <laughs> and he goes right into it. Let Pharaoh appoint a commissioner over the land to take the fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food in the good years. They're coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, hmm, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning or as wise as you. I'm going to put you in charge of all of my palace and all of my people are to submit to your orders. Only in respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph would have thought to himself, I've heard that before in Potiphar's house. <laughs> Because that's exactly what Potiphar said to him. And look how that ended. Nevertheless, he goes ahead. And they have seven huge years of incredible harvest. And he stacks up so much grain that they fundamentally can't count it. They lose the capacity to keep track and records of how much grain there is in the nation of Egypt. The seven years of plenty come with a vengeance. But then the sky folds up and there's no rain and the ground becomes like concrete and 
There's no uh, harvest at all. And the famine, they have a lockdown that goes for seven years, folks. They had no toilet paper, no nothing, right? <laughs> seven years of lockdown right here. Because the, the land gave up nothing. They were in a diabolical situation, except, of course, Joseph had all the grain stored away. And so uh, Joseph starts to sell the grain in, in, in the uh, name of Pharaoh, and the, the price of grain goes through the roof, and Pharaoh becomes richer and wealthier. And, and the, the, the news spreads beyond the borders of Egypt and to all the surrounding nations in the then known world, I will suggest. And in chapter 42, verse 1, it says, When Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt, he looked at his son's typical dad, and says, why are you just looking at each other? <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Get down there and buy some so that we might live and not die. And so they do. They follow the desires of their dad. And they head to Egypt. And the stage is set. The fortunes now have been reversed. This will be the ultimate test of Joseph's superpower. The ultimate test of his willingness to respond and not react. Everybody knows what they would do in this situation. After what the brothers had done to him in the past, and now he has them in his hand. Verse 6, it says, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold all the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground, and well they should. They're standing before the second most powerful person on planet earth. The person who has the capacity to grant them life or death. You can either have food, take it back to your people, enjoy it and live, or no food for you. Go back to your people and sit around till you die. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers in verse 7, it says he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger. He spoke harshly to them. Where have you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Imagine what's rushing through Joseph's heart. Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever had someone do the wrong thing by you? And years later, you saw them again. And all the emotion comes rushing back. All of the experience kind of returns to your mind and fills your heart. And you can imagine right in this moment, Joseph remembers the terror of his clothes being stripped off him and him being thrown into a well where there was no food or water and wondering, how long am I going to live? Is this the last day of my life? And then he remembers the ignominy of being sold as a slave, the leer of the slave traders who traded in human misery. The humiliation of being sold like a chattel on an auction block, at best as an animal. The despair of false accusation, and then, of course, the disappointment of being forgotten by the butler. All this is pulsating through his mind and through his heart as he's looking at, at the faces of the brothers who started all of this. There was this back and forward between the brothers and him and and, and, and what happens next defies expectation. What happens next defies emotion. What happens next is Joseph's superpower in full flight. He says to everybody in the room, leave us alone. 
And everybody is pushed out of the room except this group of brothers and the prime minister of Egypt. They are so confused. Hey, what is going on? What's going to happen to us now? Joseph says this. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified. You could well imagine. We reacted against Joseph and the way the father was treating him and making him special uh, uh, amongst the, uh, the siblings. We reacted. What's he going to do? He's going to react against us now. He now has the upper hand. We're doomed. This will be tit for tat for sure. Joseph looks up. He looks his brothers in the eyes. His brothers are looking at him. He's, he was 16 or 17 when they threw him in the pit. This is like 25 years ago. Yeah, they can see the resemblance. They, they, they can see the eyes. They think, yeah, yeah, this, this is him. They were terrified, but they didn't realize that Joseph had lived every day as if God was with him. Joseph didn't react. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so in verse 4 of chapter 25, I'm your brother. I'm the one. Their minds are like blowing up. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. I mean, you can just, the, 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 uh, the gears in their brains are trying to catch up. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. When we live our life from this perspective, we gain a view of our circumstances that cannot be gained any other way. No other way. When you know that God is with you, when you know that what you're experiencing right now is a chapter, but not the whole story. And that God is writing the story, that God is in control. When you know that and you can live like that, you are able to release the superpower. You are able to respond. You might go through injustice. You might even go through hell. But when you have the belief, the sense of covenant relationship that Joseph had, you have no idea what the future holds. They had no idea. They had no idea what was happening. They had no idea that Joseph was literally saving the nation of Israel. At that stage, the nation of Israel was, was the sons and their dad as kind of somewhat uh, uh, sojourners in the desert. And, and they've, they've come looking for food, but that's the nation of Israel. And without food, the nation of Israel is dead. Without the nation of Israel, Jesus never comes. Joseph has been situated in this circumstance to save the world. It's, it's not just the nation of Israel because it's the nation of Israel that brought Jesus that's your saviour and my saviour. It was, it was Joseph's capacity to respond and not react that, that, that made a way for you to know Jesus. Such is the power when we respond not react. Well, Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt and he provides for them for a long time. Until finally, as what inevitably happens in every family, you know, the, the father dies. And the sons are left now seemingly at Joseph's mercy. And the brothers come in chapter 50 and verse 18. 
And his brothers didn't come and throw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. I mean, they thought this. They thought, hey, dad's just hanging out. He's hanging out for dad to die. Once dad dies, he's going to exact his revenge, right? He doesn't want to exact his revenge while father's around because that will kill father. But now father is gone. There's nothing standing between us and the revenge of Joseph. So they do the only thing that's available to them. They come and they throw themselves down before him. And they say, we are your slaves. Do with us whatever you like. We will serve you to the day we die. But Joseph by now is used to responding. He's used to deploying his superpower and not reacting. And what he says next, you should underline in your Bible. What he says next, you should never forget. He says in chapter 50 and verse 19, chapter 50 and verse 19, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I am in the place of God. I have no doubt you had evil in your heart when you stripped me and threw me into the the well. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that when you took my technicolor coat and killed an animal and covered it with blood and went to our father and said, he's dead. We found this coat that you were trying to cover your evil tracks. You had evil in your heart. Of that, I have no doubt. But what you intended for evil, God has turned to save the lives of many. God's intentions became a reality through one man's circumstance-defining responsibility. Our responsibility gives us the potential to be better for it, no matter what it is. No matter what circumstance befalls you, no matter what disappointment you have to deal with, you can be better for it if you know how someone in your circumstance would respond if they knew beyond any shadow of doubt that God was with them. We know how they're going to, we know how people should react. We see a reaction all the time, don't we? We see people reacting to the life and to circumstances every day. We know what that looks like, but how should I respond if I know that God is right now in my life in control of everything that's unfolding? How do you answer that question? I will suggest to you right now, the way you answer that question is the best way forward for you. We are no better than our responses. And our responses take us to extraordinary places. How would someone in your circumstance respond if they knew beyond any shadow of doubt that God was with them? That God was going to connect all the dots. That one day what seems to be a mess will one day make sense. How many know that the world can seem to be a mess? How many know that the world can seem to be falling apart? And you can say, well, where is God in all of this? What's going on? And at some point, you can just react to the circumstances of life. Or you can choose to do what Joseph did and employ a destiny-shaping response. And who knows? If you employ your superpower, I'm assuring you, I mean, a money-back guarantee, your life will be better. 
the life of the people around you will be better. And maybe, just maybe the world will be a better place to live. So what am I taking away tonight? What do I need to remember? How would someone in my circumstance respond if they were confident that God was writing the script? Answer that question and you're on a pathway to greatness. Let's bow our heads with pray. Father, I thank you tonight for this incredible illustration of the power of respondability and how destinies are formed by how we respond or react to the circumstances of life. Lord, I recognize everybody in this room, by the time we get just a few days into this week, is going to have a moment where they're either going to have to respond or react. They'll be able to react to some disappointment, some letdown, and think about how unfair and how sad life is. Well, they'll know that God is with them. They might not enjoy the circumstance, but they'll know that God is with them. And on that basis, respond with wisdom and love and joy. Father, I pray in that moment that we'd be able to remember this moment. And that we wouldn't just follow the, the example of the world, of television, of, uh, of, of the workplace, of maybe even what we've seen modeled in our families. That, that wouldn't be what we would follow, but we would follow this example. The example of respondability, the superpower of respondability. That our purpose and our destiny and even our legacy will be elevated to a new height, even as a result of what happens to us this week and how we respond. Jesus. Now let's all stand together if you would. Please let's all stand up. I just want us to take a moment tonight just to open our minds and our hearts up to God. Let's just take a moment and we're just going to just pray for a moment because I, I know that there are people here right now that are facing difficulties. You are facing uncertainties. You are facing things that you prefer perhaps not to deal with. You would rather hadn't come, but they're here. You know that they're here. Let's just close our eyes for a moment. Let's just lean in to the heart of God, the wisdom of God. Not all things are good, but all things work together for good. The prison wasn't good. The accusations weren't good. They were evil. The, uh, uh, the selling wasn't good. The kidnapping wasn't good. But God used all that stuff. All things worked together for good. Because Joseph responded. That's not automatically happening. I just wonder, is there something right now that's happening in your life where you can take the truth of this, of this teaching tonight and you can, you can walk out of here with it? That you, it's kind of like, yep, yeah, I know I have to respond. What's the greatest disappointment of your life right now? What's the thing that you, is the greatest challenge in your life right now? If you knew that God was working with it, 
and you didn't have to try to control and manipulate and figure it out yourself, how would your response seem to change? Can you figure that out right now? If you're in this room and you're standing with me and you just say to me, look up, you know, I, I don't understand my life in God's hands. I've not uh, been walking in God's hands. I've been trying to manipulate it myself. Maybe you're tired of it. Maybe it's worn you down. Maybe you're tired. I've got to tell you, folks, when we try to manipulate circumstances, it is wearying. When you're carrying the burden of that, the only thing that kept Joseph going was this covenant sense of the goodness of God. Believed in the goodness of God that God was going to bring something out of us. You can have that in your life tonight if you open up your heart to Jesus. Well, heads about and eyes are closed. If you're in this room and you don't have that, your life's not open to Christ, you can open it right now to Him. It would be remiss of me if we didn't take a moment for you just to receive that in Jesus' name. We're going to sing this great song again in just a minute, but maybe you need to respond. Maybe you need to say, yeah, I need Christ in my life. If that's you, why our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, just give me a wave. I'm going to include you in my prayer. Just give me a wave if that's you. We, we, will, we will pray together. Father God, I just pray as we leave this place tonight, not one person will be doubting in their hearts the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God in and through their circumstances. In Jesus' name. Let's sing. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 